You're listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, Practical Wisdom for Everyday Life. I'm Justin Vakula, and this is episode 62, Dr. David Kyle Johnson on free will and science fiction. We talk about Mr. Spock, emotions, deliberation, neuroscience, changing habits, self-improvement, and finding meaning in life amidst content presented in his new online course, Sci-Fi, Science Fiction as Philosophy, hosted by The Great Courses. I last spoke with Dr. Johnson way back in episode 14, The Benefits of Philosophy, and I'm eager to have him back as a returning guest. Dr. David Kyle Johnson is a professor of philosophy at King's College in Pennsylvania who has three courses for The Great Courses, Sci-Fi, Science Fiction as Philosophy, 2018, The Big Questions of Philosophy, 2016, and Exploring Metaphysics, 2014. Academically, he specializes in logic, metaphysics, and philosophy of religion. He has articles in journals such as Religious Studies, Sophia, Philo, Think, and Science, Religion, and Culture. Most of his articles are available for free on academia.edu. Kyle publishes on the intersection of philosophy and popular culture. He's edited four books on the topic, the forthcoming Black Mirror and Philosophy, Inception and Philosophy, NBC's Heroes, and Introducing Philosophy Through Pop Culture. He's written over 20 articles on Star Trek, Doctor Who, South Park, Tolkien, The Colbert Report, The Daily Show, Family Guy, The Office, and Battlestar Galactica, just to name a few. He maintains two blogs for Psychology Today, Plato on Pop, and A Logical Take, and is the author of The Myths That Stole Christmas. He also has an Authors at Google Talk on Inception, with over half a million views on YouTube. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com, where you can connect with me on social media, find past episodes on many podcast platforms, and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work by becoming a donor through Patreon or PayPal. Access special rewards, including the ability to have upcoming guests answer your questions, custom podcast episodes, and personalized one-on-one discussions. Share, comment, like, subscribe, and leave reviews to help support my efforts. Email me with your thoughts, justinvacula at gmail.com. On to today's discussion. Thank you for joining me today. So we're here to talk about parallels between Stoic philosophy, free will, in your recent sci-fi course that's been released in The Great Courses. Uh, that's right. It's called a Sci-Fi. Fi is spelled P-H-I because I'm going for a pun here. Uh, <laughs> sci-Fi, science fiction as philosophy. Right. Now, before we start about free will, we were chatting a little bit off air about Spock and some people thinking of Spock as a stoic figure. Can you talk about that for a bit? Yeah. So this actually isn't something I cover in the course. If I do a sequel to the course, which I would like to do, one of the things I would cover would be Spock and stoicism, because it turns out that Mr. Spock is modeled after Gene Roddenberry's somewhat very inaccurate view of what a stoic is or what stoicism entailed. Mm-hmm. And it's like the entire Vulcan race is supposed to be like a, a race of stoics in Gene Roddenberry's mind. But of course, his idea of what stoicism was wasn't exactly accurate. And so that could make for a really good, good uh, primer kind of on stoicism to talk about Mr. Spock and what he's like, the, what it means to be logical in the Spock sense and that kind of stuff. Uh, and then compare that to what stoics are actually like. And I would need to do a little research and kind of dig down deep and, uh, and also run it past Massimo Pigliucci, who's a Star Trek fan as well, and and would uh, would be able to you know fact fact check me and that kind of stuff on on that. But that's that's an idea uh, uh, to do there because there there definitely is that that there is that connection there because it is what Roddenberry intended. Right, and Massimo was a past podcast guest. We talked about that very briefly. Oh yeah, yeah. Interesting. Like I'm actually staring at a bust of Star of 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 Spock on my desk. Uh, right now, Spock actually played a role uh, in me entering philosophy in, along with science fiction. So I remember, so this is something I actually talk about in the course, I remember exactly where I was as a kid when I saw my first episode of Star Trek. <laughs> it, was, it was called Spectre of a Gun, and the, the crew comes across this weird western town, and they realize that it's actually an illusion, and, and only by recognizing that it's an illusion and so it's not really there are they able to guard against the bullets that are being fired at them because the bullets aren't real? The you know the the non-logical crew members you know uh, uh, Chekhov and and Kirk and and McCoy mm-hmm. can't can't get past the way things seem right. Like they Spock can kind of convince them that it's 
right? That it's not real, but they can't get past the way things seem. Only Spock is the one that's able to say, nope, reason tells me that the world is this way. Therefore, it is this way and I can accept it regardless of what my senses tell me. And as a kid, I was like, hell yeah, right? Like that's that's, <laughs> that's the kind of person that I want to be. I want to be logical. I don't want to be fooled by the way things seem. I want to know the way the world really is. And so Spock was kind of an intellectual hero in a certain kind of way. And that's you know, it's, that's a philosophy if with intellectual philosophy and intellectual approach, we might call it, you know, still embrace today. So I keep the little bust of Spock on my desk to remind me to be that way uh, all the time. Very good. And a major part of Stoic philosophy, I think, is the dichotomy of control, thinking that some things are in our power up to us, as they say, and some of those things are not. There's also a more modern version from author William Irvine, the trichotomy of control, adding that some things are partially in our control. And that goes along with what you were saying, that we might think certain things, we might feel certain things, but can we step back a little bit and question that? What choices might we have? How can we determine the level of free will we can say that we have in our lives? Yeah, so I think there's a, a big distinction to be drawn here, though, when we talk about control and free will. So we can ask questions about how much control do we have over our life, uh, how, how much control do we have over what happens to us and that kind of stuff, and then questions about wh whether or not we have free will or even how much free will we have. And those aren't the same kinds of questions, right? So like, mm -hmm. especially in relation to Stoicism, so at least if I, as uh, Stoicism as I understand it and feel to Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not an mm. expert in Stoicism, right? Like, so one of the things that, that Stoicism encourages us to do, right, is to not worry about things that we can't control, right? Right, like to kind of recognize what we can do something about, what we can't do something about, and do something about what we can, and then don't worry about what we can't. That aspect of control, what we mean by control there and figuring out what we can control and what we can't really has to do with figuring out what we can causally contribute to or not, right? Like, what can I do anything about, right? There are some things that no matter what I do, they're going to happen anyway, right? I can't control, Like the know, weather, for instance. Right, right, right. Like, right, like, so Wilkes-Barre, where Kings is, just got hit by a tornado just last night. Right. Uh, just, you know, just like a mile down the road from, from my college, right? There's nothing I can do about that. I cannot control the weather, and so there's, there's no causal effect I can have. But I can causally affect my own actions, right? Like I can get in the basement and, you know, play it safe or I can, you know, think, ah, it's not going to hit me and not do anything about it or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And these are, these are actions that I can bring about. Right. And so I can causally affect the way my life goes in a certain kind of way, even if like that causal effect can still be real, even if I don't have free will, the ability. And so what free will is among other things, at least what's a necessary condition for free will, at least on most definitions. And we'll talk about alternate definitions a little bit later. It, it's the ability to act differently than you do. This is what mm -hmm. we call alternate possibilities, right? Or literally if the future could be different than it is, and if it can't be different than it is, then you don't have free will in that sense. And so if you lack free will, the way that you act may be inevitable in some kind of way, but that doesn't mean that what you do doesn't causally contribute to how your life goes, right. right? And so there's this distinction. Now, how do you determine what's within your control and what's not? That's tough. In general, I'd say that kind of things that are locally related to you, we might say, are inside of your control and like grander things aren't like the weather, like government and that kind of stuff generally mm -hmm. is inside in your, in your control unless you happen to get elected to office or something like that. Generally, the behavior of other peoples is not within your control, although you might learn to manipulate people or something like that. But this is not my area of expertise to figure out what you can control or not. But as far as free will, if you're trying to determine whether we have free will, generally the way I put it, I've put it in publications and stuff, there are kind of three things that seem to entail that we don't have free will in the libertarian sense. That, it, In other words, that entail that the future can't be different than it is, that what will happen will happen inevitably in a certain kind of way. That's the idea of determinism, and determinism strictly is false on the quantum level, but what we might call macro determinism, that what happens in the macro or larger than quantum world seems to be determined. The second thing that seems to indicate that we don't have free will is what we've learned about the brain and how it operates and that our decisions seem to arise from unconscious parts of our brain. And you can actually predict a person's decisions before they are made in a lot of cases. And then there are simple logic and scientific facts that entail that, like from a metaphysical point of view, the future already exists. And so there is no doing otherwise than what the future already contains. 
a lot of different takes on it, a lot of questions that come out of this. So it's not as simple as we think. But let's go on to the emotions, as you talked about that, that we might have these unconscious responses, or maybe these innate responses. Seneca talks about that anyway, in his text, he talks about what he calls the blush of modesty, that even the most practiced speaker might experience some stage fright or some anxiety when approaching the podium. There are these reactions, these emotions within us that might lead us to think that we lack free will in certain senses. Yeah, you talk in your lectures of emotions arising from a primitive part of the brain, being irrational, not arising from conscious rational deliberation. Correct, right? So we know that the limbic system is what is is most responsible for emotions and the generation of emotions. And the limbic system is not actually conscious. We are consciously aware of our emotions, but the reason that we like we feel emotions is because the limbic system, which again is unconscious, feeds the information to the conscious parts of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex, the cortex, that kind mm. of stuff. Feeds the essentially the information that you know what it's about, what it's doing, the emotions it's producing, essentially feeds that information to the cortex, and then we have the experience of the emotion. But like the origin of the emotion is in this kind of primitive, non-conscious part of the brain called the limbic system. So there's a couple things to say about it. For one, it exercises a great amount of control over us. So I mean, literally, like the there are connections that run up from the limbic system to the cortex mm-hmm. that like send signals to the cortex that kind of tell that motivate our behavior. And then there are signals that run back down from the co- cortex to the limbic system where those those connections can kind of dampen down emotions, right? So if the limbic system kind of freaks out about something, the rational part of your brain can send signals to it to kind of settle it down so that you don't overreact to something, right? This is like when you learn to like, if you get upset and you don't act out, you don't punch someone, Mm -hmm. that's the rational part of your brain sending signals back down to your limbic system to try to tamp that down. But it turns out that even in adults, the number of connections running up from the limbic system compared, it it dwarfed, like the number of, of connections running from the limbic system to the cortex vastly outnumbers the number of connections running back from the cortex to the limbic system so that the amount of control that the cortex can exercise on the emotions is very very limited you can you can develop more connections as you mature and as you age and like literally with practice and so some people can be better at this than others uh this is also why children are notoriously so emotional and cry so easily is because their limbic system essentially just completely controls them and they don't have the connections from their rational you know, cortex running back down to calm them down. But even in mature adults, the connections from the limbic system are vastly outweighed coming up from the limbic system to the cortex are vastly outweighed by those going back down the other direction. And we, we see what happens in people's brains when they're making decisions and it looks like that the part of the brain that is active first when the decision is being made is the non-conscious emotional limbic system, right? And it's only, and you can actually, that LaVey, and there's there's a couple of others that, that, did, uh, um, that, that did experiments on this where they were actually able to predict what people were going to do by looking at the brain activity before the decision was consciously made. And so there's a decent case to be made, at least for the decisions that we've studied, that what happens is the decision is made, when, when you make a decision, the decision is made in unconscious parts of your, of, of your brain, and then the fact that the decision has been made, that information is sent to the cortex, the conscious parts of the brain, and then you have the experience of making the decision. And you think, oh, well, that, that thing that I just experienced, that's what caused me to do what I did, when in reality, feeling that that's what caused to do is just an illusion, right? The, 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 the causal work was done by the unconscious parts of the brain, and this conscious experience of making a decision seems to be only an afterthought, and it gives us the illusion of free will. Right. Within the Stoic texts, there's talk of, yes, children maybe being afraid of the dark and having this anxiety, but as we grow, as we have experiences, undergo certain training, we can improve our reactions, our habits with wisdom and determination, right? They, they talk right. about desire, right. moderation, self-improvement. It might be a difficult journey. It might take time. 
we can have a conscious effort at trying to change our reactions to things and try to improve it. There's a couple things to say here. One is that sense of stage fright. There's an interesting parallel in kind of fiction studies. There's this thing called the paradox of fiction, where the paradox is, why is it that we cry at a movie, like a, like a science fiction movie or something like that? You go see a sci-fi movie and it touches you emotionally and maybe you get scared or you you know cry when the protagonist dies mm-hmm. or something like that. And you wonder, well, why in the world would you do that? Because you know it's not real. You know it's only a movie. That person's not real. None of that really happened. Why would you cry? So how can you have an emotional reaction to something while at the same time knowing that it's not real? That's the paradox. And the solution that William Irwin and I have proposed in print is is kind of along this line. It's movies create this kind of what we might call an emotional illusion for us, right? And that there are, in the same way that like when you see an optical illusion, like the famous tabletop illusion where you see the two tables and they're turned mm-hmm. differently and one looks kind of short and fat, the other one looks long and skinny and then it turns out the tabletops are exactly the same size. You can know that those are actually the same size. Like intellectually, you can know and you can even see someone take one tabletop and pull it to the other and see that they're the same size, but you won't be able to help but see them as different sizes when the, when the illusion is presented to you, right? Mm-hmm. There's this way in which... There are unconscious parts of the brain that are doing things completely outside of conscious control, and there is nothing that you can do about it. Intellectually, you can know that there are different that they are the same size, but you'll still see them as different as different size. Intellectually, in the same way, intellectually, you can know that the movie you're watching is real, but unconscious parts of your brain are still going to react to it as if it as if it is because the intellectual parts of your brain cannot affect those unconscious parts. Those unconscious parts are just going to do what they do automatically and you you can't control them and so you can know there's nothing to be afraid of when stepping in front of a a crowd but you can still have that emotional you can still have the stage fright you can still have those kind of reactions now that said over time you can learn to dampen down those reactions right right? can right like somebody who cries a lot at films might be able to over time kind of keep themselves from crying too much at films by reminding themselves that it's not real or whatever with, you know, uh, with uh, that kind of uh, self-control and self-determination mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. They can they can figure out how to do that or somebody with stage fright can do the same thing. They can overcome those. However, an, an interesting question that arises from that is if we don't have free will, can we really self-improve in that way, right? You talk about like conscious self-determination to... Right try to break these habits uh, that we have in, in an effort to try to, you know, improve yourself. And you think, well, wait a minute, if we don't have free will and all the decisions making, you know, decision making is happening on an unconscious level, can we really do that? This can kind of give people that this threat of us not having any free will can give us this kind of false impression, I think, that like nothing matters, right? No matter what happens, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. So why bother even trying? Why bother deliberating? Why bother with self-improvement? The way I am is the way I am, and I'm just going to be that way. But that is not entailed by our lacking free will. And again, we can go back to the difference between control and free will to, I think, make this distinction. Even if we don't have free will, we can still make choices, The choices won't be free choices, but decisions can still be made. And what decision ends up being made will greatly affect, you know, or could greatly affect the way that the rest of your life goes, right? When you reflect on it philosophically, you you can look back and go, well, my my brain structure is such that I couldn't have made any other decision than I did, right? But the decision was still made and the decision still had a causal influence on the rest of your life. And so it's not like, deliberating about things is worthless it's not it's not like making choices about things is worthless or being able to weigh the consequences of you know possible choices that you that you might make right like think of it this way when we talk about the like the illusions the optical illusions uh that are presented to us they are still illusions right the tabletops are the same size you can't help but see them differently in the same way we can't help but feel the illusion of free will it is, it is inevitable. In fact, in and of itself, it might be an argument that we're not free. You are not free to believe that you are not free. You cannot help but believe or at least feel like you have free will, right? But this is actually a good thing because that illusion of free will allows us to make rational choices, deliberative choices, right? Even if ultimately it's, it's you know, the, the motivation for the choice might come from unconscious parts of the brain or, you know, maybe not all of them are that way, but we can still make choices and decisions because from our point of view, there are multiple possibilities, right? right. We're, we're likely wrong about there being alternate possibilities, but it sure looks like that 
to us from when we're making a choice. And because it does look like that, we can weigh the different options and think about the different consequences of the choices and then make the best choice. There's a lot of talk in the Stoic text about asking what must be traded for what, that if we're going to focus our lives on accumulating wealth, the neglect of virtue, selling out, we could consider that. And well, what kind of life do we want to live? Might we go, say, polluting the environment at an extreme rate to make some profit? We can weigh one thing against another and make a determination about what we want to do. Might this add to our capacity for choice or free will or whatever we should call it. Right, right. And so going through that kind of process, all like the, the making the choice to break certain habits in order to improve yourself, right? That is all still possible. All the Stoics talk about in relation to wanting to do that and that you should do that is all still possible, even if we don't have free will. Ultimately, like from a metaphysical point of view, ultimately, whether you would or would not do that, whether you will or will not self-improve or even make the choice to self-improve may not really be a free will decision, but the choice to do that is still possible even if there's not free will. And so it, it, like the lack of free will, I don't think, negates anything in the way the Stoics make recommendations about how you live your life or what kind of choices that you should make. All it does is refute this idea, and maybe some Stoics endorse this idea, but all it does is kind of refute this idea that when you make that decision, what's going on is your disembodied soul is reaching down from beyond the physical world and causing you to act one way rather than another, and that you really could have acted in either way in the metaphysical sense, right? To the extent that the Stoics would think that, that would be false on this kind of view that I'm defending here. All the decision-making and the self-improving and, and everything else they talk about, that can all still be done. It's just not done by some extra-physical being that right. is you that's reaching out from beyond the world. Yeah, I see them as being materialists and talking about the reasoning faculty that we have, our thought processes, and, well, we could consider those different possibilities and come to a conclusion with proper exposure to that wisdom, consideration, and input from different philosophers, people from all walks of life, even reading certain texts that can lead us to take action and even feel invigorated and go out in the world and face certain challenges. Yeah. So like, there's a couple things to say in regards to that. One is that the, the realizing that uh, we lack free will in this way can lead us to make better decisions in regards to, again, they would, may not be free decisions, but lead us to make better decisions in regard to how we improve ourselves, right? So you realize that, well, I act as accordance to my, you know, I act in accordance with my brain structure. My brain structure dictates the way I behave. And my brain structure result is a result of my DNA and my environment. If I don't like the way I'm behaving, then the way I change that is I change my environment, right? And one of the ways I could change my environment is by uh -huh. reading different texts, yes. right? Like in different inspirational texts that educate me, that you know, teach me different ways. And that can actually change my brain structure, which ultimately will change the way I'm making Good. choices, yeah. right? That self-awareness. Um, and so, yes, it's all part of that self-awareness. And the second thing to say about that, in view, in light of the fact that the arguments against free will in the libertarian sense are... So strong. And again, in the libertarian sense, I mean, in the sense that we can we can do otherwise, that there are alternate possibilities, that it's an unrestricted idea. Right. Uh, and it really is inspired by this kind of idea that there's a separately existing being that can you know, reach down from beyond the world and cause you to behave as you do. But in response to the, the very convincing arguments against that kind of free will, what some philosophers have done is change the definition of free will. So that they can still say that we have free will. So, for example, John Martin Fisher, if my memory served me correctly, has this idea, and I'm really roughshodding this, there's a lot more to be said about the little more nuanced version of his definition. But essentially what he suggests is that an action is free as long as it is the result of a rational deliberative process. What, what Fisher would likely argue is that like, in the experiments that, that show that choices arise from our unconscious kind of emotional parts of our brain, that those are only certain kinds of decisions. But that bigger decisions could be influenced by the rational cortex and that we can go through these rational decision procedures to arrive at uh, conclusions and then that those conclusions motivate action. And so he would say that if an action is a result of a rational deliberative process, it's free. Now you might, and then if you were to ask, yeah, but could that process have gone any different than it, than it would? Fisher would say, no, it, it can't. The, the process 
is a physical process that happens in your brain. It gives rise, we would say, to you know conscious activity and that kind of stuff. The process may very well, in fact, likely is deterministic, such that there's no other outcome that it could have. But Fisher would say that doesn't matter. What makes an action free is the fact that it is arrived upon as the result of a rational, deliberative process. And as long as that is true, you're free. And you're morally responsible for what you do, even. All of that, like, that, I think that aligns very nicely with stoicism. If you want to change the way that your rational, deliberative process goes, then expose yourself to a different environment, different readings, different writers, different, you know, different uh, uh, okay. ideas, and that can you know, change the way that you reason. And so all the kind of decisions that the Stoics would say that you should be making and the kind of things that you should be doing are, are still in line with that. Right. There's a lot of talk in the text about being careful when selecting friends and which kind of social circles we should involve ourselves in. And they talk about being a person around, was it coal or a fire? And that if we're around so much coal, well, we're going to get all sorts of soot on us, right? We're going to get dirty by those we hang around is the explanation that's given by, I think it's Epictetus, right? We, we could tend to mimic other people, especially children, will mimic the behavior of others, adults, people that they look up to, people that they see as responsible as good decision makers. And people can even be slavish, conforming to and mimicking the crowds, the masses, society, right? Not questioning their assumptions. So we can be heavily influenced by others around us. And with an awareness of that, we can go on to, yes, ask those questions and pick our own path in life rather than just going with the plan for life that others have set forth for us or values that people have drawn to our awareness. We can break break free of some of those traditions. Right. And all the recommendations the Stoic makes for doing that, right? Questioning the assumptions, questioning the, the influence of the crowd on you, questioning assumptions that you've had since you were born or, or what like it, all of those are still valid. All of those are still things that you should be doing. And if you think, well, what's the use in doing any of that because I'm not free, so whatever's going to happen is going to happen is a is a misunderstanding, essentially, of, of what those who deny free will are suggesting. It's not that what's going to happen to you is going to happen to you regardless. The choices you make and the influences that you bring in and the kind of thinking that you do influences the way that your life goes. And so you still need to be careful about all those things, even if the choice to whether or not to be careful or not isn't ultimately a free choice. Right. So we can still work towards self-improvement. We can still be active in the world. We can still pursue a meaningful life rather than, oh, well, I'm just going to give up and just lay in my bed all day. And maybe they could even say, well, that was a choice. So in, in, in that regards, like some people, uh, you talked about the meaning of life. Some people think this this realization that we don't have free will like, makes life meaningless. But I actually argue this it, this is there's so much crossover in my courses. So another course I have for the great courses is mm -hmm. called the Big Questions of Philosophy. In the Big Questions, I we talk about <laughs> a lot of the big questions of philosophy, like do, do we have free will? Is there a God? Right? Uh, does the self exist, or is the self even an illusion that your brain creates for you? All these kinds of questions. And the last lecture, like the the entire kind of course, it's a 36 lecture course, kind of sets up this last lecture that is kind of a preview of the sci-fi course. Because in the last lecture, I talk about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There is, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's this whale that is called into existence from nothing. How this happens is another story. But in the midst of the story, a nuclear missile is turned into a giant whale above, high in the atmosphere of a planet called Magrathea. And the whale just pops into existence and then falls <laughs> to its death. But as it falls, Douglas Adams tells the story of exactly what it thought and you literally get to like live the entire whale's life and essentially as it's called into existence it just immediately starts asking whoa who am i why am i here what does it mean to ask who am i uh and it starts wondering about the, the nature of its existence and it starts asking these kind of big philosophical questions till it sees this giant thing coming towards him decides to call it ground wonders if it will be his friend and then <laughs> right it splats but what's what's interesting about it is that the whale is not unlike us. It's just its existence is shorter, right? It's called into existence randomly. It has no control, I should say, it has no control over the path to which it takes from its existence to its demise. For him, it's a for the whale, it's a straight line down. But if we don't have free will, we don't have a, a control, we don't have a choice, a free choice about the, uh, uh, the, the path that we take from when we're born and when we die. And of course, our death is also inevitable, right? And we ask some of these same questions. And so we could think, well, 
if there is no God and there is no free will, does that make life meaningless, right? And in, the, in that last lecture of The Big Questions, I argue that it doesn't make meaning, life meaningless at all, that you can, there still can be not even just like kind of, there can be objective meaning to life in and of itself, even if there is no God, no free will and no afterlife, because there are things that are objectively valuable. And to the extent that your life contributes to those things and, and brings those things about in others and that you experience those things yourself, those things can be objectively meaningful. I'll talk more about it, you know, in more detail in the lecture. But that, that is to say that us lacking free will does not make life meaningless. Life can still be objectively meaningful. Doesn't guarantee it will be, but it still, but it still can be. Sure. And there's a lot of talk in Stoicism about what does that good life look like? What should our aims be, right? If we can work toward pursuing virtue, work toward bettering society, ourselves, living a well-examined life, an ethical life, working toward justice, having courage, right? These are some structures that we can work from, back to even virtue ethics from Aristotle and different approaches from other schools at that time. Yeah, we're, we're asking in the modern era where so many people still seem to be unhappy, they aren't finding a sense of fulfillment thousands of years ago. Well, many people were still talking about these questions and society seemed to be far more brutish back then. But with modern technology, many of the things of this era a lot of that unhappiness still continues. People are still searching for a sort of meaning. Right. And notice that all of the things the Stoic says that you can do to seek out that better meaningful life, you can still do if you don't like free will. Whether or not you will do them is ultimately out, like in the ultimate metaphysical sense, either you will or you won't, and there's ultimately nothing that you could do about it. But you can still do those mm. things, and you can still have control in the more limited sense Right. So maybe it could be even a question of what degree of control do we have? It doesn't have to be this all or nothing proposition, as you say. And maybe there's a case for a compatibilism, as that's a popular perspective within philosophy. Yeah. And so, I mean, compatibilism mm -hmm. is the, the view that I was talking about before with John Martin Fisher, right, who redefines free will in this, you know, this sense of you're free as long as you act in accordance with a, uh, a rational deliberation. The compatibilism here means that free will is compatible with determinism. It's compatible with the idea that you can't act any other way than you will act. Like another version of that, uh, Harry Frankfurt, who um, has the famous Frankfurt counterexamples, he suggests that one is free as long as one acts in accordance with their second order desires. And what that means is your desires about your desires. So in other words, someone who's addicted to cigarettes does not freely smoke the cigarette, the next cigarette that they smoke. They do not freely do that. They're you know, trapped by their addiction. But if they don't want to be an addict, addict anymore, and they choose and they successfully choose not to smoke their next cigarette, even though they have the appetite for it, even though they have the craving, that's acting in accordance with a second order desire. And that is what mm -hmm. Frankfurt would say is a free decision, even if whether or not they act on that second order desire is ultimately not up to them. It's not, you know, there, there, there's no other thing that they could possibly do. But if they do act in accordance with a second order desire, that's what he would call free. That's compatibilism. And if you accept that definition, definition of free will, you got free will all over the place. And there's, you know, no question that you can do all the things that the Stoic suggests that you can do. But even if you reject that definition of free will, which I do, I don't think that's the right definition of free will. But even if you reject that definition of free will, you can still do all the things that the Stoic says you can and should do for a meaningful and happy life. Right. And the desire, it's something that can come about through rational deliberation, as we mentioned as well. We might feel that impulse to eat all of that fatty food and gorge ourselves at the buffet or go out into hookup culture on Tinder and not really care about consequences. But if we think about that and say, well, you know, maybe that's not the right path. We can have more moderation in life. That's surely a pillar of Stoicism. Right. So the, the person who has the addiction, yeah, well, that might be the biology that was altered in a certain way. But then they can come into a realization that, well, I have this craving, but I'm going to combat that. Right. And notice, though, that this, this brings us to a slightly different topic, that this realization that we don't have free will, it shouldn't affect the way that you make decisions. You should still make decisions in the same way that you always have because the same things are relevant to whether or not the decision is the right decision or a good decision or whether it will have a positive effect on your life. However, the realization that others, that no one is free, can help you treat others in a better way, right? So it can, first of all, it can help you understand 
the way that others behave, when you realize that the way they're behaving is not a result of their soul reaching out from beyond the world, but as a result of their brain structure mm-hmm. and that they, you know, in an ultimate sense, can't have acted differently than they did. And that the choice that they made as a result of their, you know, their DNA and their environment, their brain structure, which is ultimately a result of their DNA and environment mm-hmm. that can help you understand their behavior better and treat them more humanely. Right. We might say it makes it easier not to get so mad at someone when you realize that the way that they're behaving is ultimately a result of their brain structure. And then it also can like greatly affect, for example, the way that we would treat prisoners, right? Because the criminal is criminal because of the way his brain is structured. And so ultimately it's not within his control. In the Fisher sense, yes, he might be going through a rational deliberation or maybe it is just an emotional response, right? There's a number of different motivations for criminal behavior, But if we recognize that the criminal behavior is not some defect in his soul, this immaterial substance, you know, which we cannot affect because it's outside the physical world, but it's a problem with their brain, then rehabilitation becomes the purpose and motivation for like criminal punishment, right? And it wouldn't even really be criminal punishment at that point because the punishment has a kind of moral dimension to it that would not be justified on this realization right right? so when someone's a criminal you you could still lock them up it would be justified to lock them up but to do so could only have two legitimate motivations one protection of society if they're going to misbehave again you isolate them from society so they can't hurt someone else but whatever unpleasantness that they suffer through in prison can only be for the purpose of rehabilitation, right? Can only be for the purpose of either motivating them not to do it again or to change the way that they are. And what studies actually show is that punishing people really doesn't do that very well. Like th- there needs to be actual rehabilitative efforts made, right? In 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 regards like interventions, like moral education and just general education and that kind of stuff, right? Um, a lot of times crime is motivated by poverty and poverty is due to the fact that they can't find a job. And so you educate them and train them so that they can be a contributing member of society and then the motivation for criminal behavior goes away, right? And so, but the, but the idea of like a moral justification for punishing people goes away when you, when you realize that ultimately they don't freely decide to behave. As they do, they decide to behave as they do, but they don't do so freely. Right. There's lots of talk in the Stoic text about having pity for others, that the reason that they have these behaviors is a lack of training, this lack of wisdom, as we said. But if they were exposed to the information, they were more reflective about their actions, then perhaps they would come around. Also, if they had some good role models, some reasons for good behavior in wanting to achieve this virtuous life, they would also see that destructive behaviors aren't going to be the path to contentment, that it's only going to inflict harm upon themselves and others. It's a counterproductive behavior in so many cases. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There's also a lot of talk of judgments in our interpretation of things as we'll be in the world, see certain events, see certain people, and we'll have an opinion about it, right? And the opinion can really be a middle step between the event and our reaction to it as some people might act really impulsively they might see a certain person behaving in a way and just have this really angry reaction whereas others will respond differently yeah so i think that the realization that we don't have free will i think can help curb negative reactions to people's behavior it it makes you realize that like ultimately they're not in, you know, like they don't have an ultimate sense of control of what they're doing that what they're doing is a result of their brain structure and there's not something that's ultimately inside their control and so it can it can mitigate when you understand the the reason that people are behaving the way they are it makes it easier to deal with it it makes it easier not to get angry with them and it can also like i mean even if we're not even just talking about criminals mm-hmm. we're just talking about other people that behave right. you know that that we know in the world it can help us alter their behavior because we understand what we need to do to try to correct that behavior, right? Or what they need to do to correct that behavior. So we can, right. We could try to instruct others, try to help them even in productive ways. Right. Right. In productive ways or encourage them to you know, expose themselves to different thinking or thinkers or different ideas or, or whatever it is that's necessary to, to do that. Right. Like, I mean, and this comes to everything from changing someone's behavior to even if, once you understand that one of the places I think that society professionals have actually embraced the idea that we don't have free will is with political campaigns, that people realize that 
people don't certainly they don't rashly most people don't rationally conclude who they will vote for that it's mostly an emotional process and that emotional process can be manipulated very easily and so this is why political ads are the way that they are they have the ominous music and that kind of <laughs> stuff you don't see people presenting arguments in political ads you see emotional appeals and that kind of stuff and i think it's because people doing this have realized that people aren't free they don't freely decide who to vote for they they let their emotions do their thinking for them or they're deciding for them and it's not ultimately a free action the same is true political debates or debates about anything if you're trying to you know have an argument or trying to with someone or trying to convince someone to change their view most of the time you're not going to do it if you just present a rational argument to them but if you understand why they believe what they do and why they drew that conclusion and you kind of understand this kind of non-free process that they went through to arrive at that conclusion you might better understand how you could actually change their mind yeah, it's just a quick reaction that people have that doesn't seem to be so productive. Like, oh, well, you disagree with me. Well, you must be this evil person or you must hate this certain group of people, right? But that's not actually aiming at behavior change or really talking about the issues. But that certain shaming or the language might lead people to question in some way. Will it be ultimately effective? Why, why is it that some people would adopt certain shaming language or nastiness rather than going through the argument presenting an argument to someone it likely will not work because they didn't reason themselves into that position in the first place you can argue to your blue in the face mm -hmm. and it's not going to do anything right recognizing that they didn't freely decide to have the position that they did and they didn't reason to it can help you in understanding what you need to do to change their mind. If you if you think it's some kind of emotional reaction that led to them to that conclusion, you can explore that emotional reaction, that reaction, why they you know reacted that way, and they might come to a different realization or you know uh, a different emotion even that would ultimately change their mind on a particular topic. Present all the evidence in the world to the flat Earth Society, right, or the young Earth creationists of the world, and yes, maybe that won't change their minds. But for people who are more in the middle or really haven't considered the arguments too much, maybe, yes, there's some hope there and using some reason and even being compassionate to the person you're talking to instead of being nasty, that can lead them in that direction. Oh, well, we can understand that maybe they had those ideas from their parents or people in their local community, or they just happened upon a certain internet forum, but they haven't examined the issue really deeply. Right, right. Yeah, but even with people, so like certainly with people who are more middle of the road, you might be able to present an argument that could that could convince them. But I'm even thinking of like people like creationists, right? That mm -hmm. you you're not going to reason them out, out of their position, but you could potentially, if you understand that the reason that they are creationists is because of some kind of religious devotion, the way to change their mind is to approach the topic from an era of religious devotion. Right, right? meeting them where they're at. And that you can do that more easily when you recognize that they're not free. The reason they drew the conclusion they, they drew is not because, I mean, free in either the libertarian sense or even the compatibilist sense, right? They're not free in the libertarian sense. They didn't choose, they're sold it and reached down from beyond the, you know, the world to, to decide what they were going to believe. Uh, but they also didn't rationally deliberate about what to believe. And so they're not free in either one of those senses, the compatibilist or the libertarian sense. But once you realize that, your hopes of convincing them otherwise, I think, improves because you know at least a little bit better what you need to do to try to convince them. The What I've seen with my students who eventually move away from kind of irrational positions is, I mean, they learn, I teach them how to think in class, but they come to, like, the reason they believe what they do is because of certain values that they have. And what I do over a semester is get them to value truth mm -hmm. and to see it as valuable. And once that's done then the arguments start to matter because they care about knowing the truth. They care about not you know, being duped and they care about believing what is true. And then they start to see, well, if I really do care about that, then I do need to give up this other thing, which is obviously false and embrace this other view. And that takes time. You can't just do that in a single to instill the value of truth in someone is not something you can do in a conversation. It, right. it, in a single conversation, it really does take uh, exposure to a lot of different ideas and arguments and, and readings and yeah. Right. It's something that's even mentioned a lot, that change being a gradual process, that's a fact about human nature, as Stoics say, even Epictetus himself was talking about how he had difficulty with anger, and he gradually became less angry. He took upon a, 
a writing exercise. He kept a journal and was talking about, well, I was less angry today than I was yesterday. And if I can go so long without these bigger fits of anger, then that's a great success, right? It's it's not going to happen overnight. We shouldn't be angry at others for not changing their minds. It's It's a gradual process. We can expose them to information and hopefully they can deliberate upon it, maybe in a free sense or yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, good. What is the overlap between science fiction and free will that you found in your work? Free will is talked about a lot uh, in science fiction. Uh, a couple of notable uh, uh, examples are The Matrix and specifically The Matrix sequels, which I think are two of the most underrated sequels, sci-fi sequels of all time. People disagree with me. I make a case specifically for that in the sci-fi course that they're <laughs> underrated. They're not, they're not perfect, but I think they're definitely underrated. And one way I think they're underrated is philosophically, especially the sequels, because they do really directly address this idea of free will. And you have characters in the Matrix sequels that directly argue against the idea that we have free will, right? So the Oracle mentions essentially what's what's known as the freedom foreknowledge problem. If God knows what you're going to do beforehand, how could you do it freely? Because the mm. Oracle's this being that knows the future, right? And I don't think there's actually a there's not a solution to that problem. If there is a being that knows what you're going to do beforehand, you aren't free when you do it. They don't make you do it, but you're still not free because you couldn't have done otherwise. Right. The only, the only possible future, sure. Yes, exactly, because that's the only possible future if they already know it. And then, like the Merovingian in the Matrix, literally, you know, says that all that's all that's real, the only thing that really has any kind of any control of the world is cause and effect, action, reaction. Makes a pretty decent argument that that's the case, and that free will is an illusion. And the kind of the only kind of dis- disappointing thing about the Matrix is that it seems to be an argument that we are free. Ultimately, as I argue in the course, Neo saves the day simply by exercising his free will at the very end of the film Uh, in a way that Smith cannot see coming, even though he has the Oracle's powers, because it's a truly free decision. And just the mere fact that he acts freely is what allows him to defeat Smith and saves the both machine world and the human world, et cetera, et cetera. But what's philosophically disappointing about the film is that it presents no argument that this is the case. Like it gives us no reason to think that humans actually have free will or that, you know, give us a reason to think that Neo's actually free. They just kind of assert it. Just Neo just is free. He just makes this free will decision. It's very limited free will. There's only certain things that are free, it seems, in the movie. Uh, but it gives no argument uh, to that case. And then uh, another place this, this has come up is in, in Westworld. In fact, in the most recent episode I just watched of Westworld, which, if mm-hmm. memory serves, was season two, episode eight. In Westworld, there are androids uh, essentially hosts robots really this is kind of a story about how these robots get free will and what it means for them to be free and there are you know definite arguments in the show that kind of suggest that the the robots are just as free as we are like they end up the the hosts the, the androids end up being just as free as humans are but really that freedom only amounts to a kind of compatibilistic freedom they are able to control their actions and have a more, they are able to make decisions and those decisions definitely causally affect the way their life goes, but it's not, they're not free decisions and that ultimately the humans aren't any more free than the hosts are. And so that's where we see this intersection. That's where we see these kinds of arguments uh, about free will and even some suggestions that free will doesn't exist. Right. And even the classic Truman show, I could think of that, the film with Jim Carrey, right? It was a man who was planted in this environment watched by everyone throughout the world. And there were certain incidents in which he was made to be afraid of water that led to him not wanting to escape from the set, that they exposed him to certain stimuli. And well, he he hadn't realized what had happened. That was part of his, shall we say, programming even. Right. And he certainly doesn't look very free whenever he's programmed in that way and then behaves okay. in that way. How can people contact and find more about you? Listen to my great courses. I've got three of them, Exploring Metaphysics, which is audio only, which should be on the Great Courses Plus app pretty soon. It's They used to not, they used to not do their, their audio only courses, but they're going to start doing that. So it should be there soon. Otherwise, you can just you know buy it on the website or get it as an audible mm. audible audiobook. The Big Questions of Philosophy is my second course. That's thirty six lectures, and my sci fi course, sci fi science fiction as philosophy. I've poured so much that I am into these courses, so you can find out a lot about me there. In a certain kind of way, whenever whenever they offered for me to do the science fiction and philosophy course, 
I literally said to myself, all right, I've been preparing for this my whole life. Like my, since I was six, I have been preparing for this course, right? Cause I've been, you know, steeped in science fiction all my life and then studying philosophy and all that stuff. And it, it all came together in a very nice way. Didn't even cover half of what I wanted to cover. And so I'd love to do a sequel. So who I'd like the, your listeners to contact if they, they, they watch the course and like it is contact the great courses and say how great the course was and that you want more of it. And, and they'll, they get enough reaction like that. They'll, they'll have me do another one. My academic work, if you want to see my academic work, most of it is available for free on academia.edu. Just Google academia.edu, David Kyle Johnson. My, my page will come up and, and my pop, a lot of my pop culture, most of my pop culture chapters are there. My, my journal articles and that kind of stuff uh, are there. And then links to my other works, like the great courses and stuff are there too, including my links to my psychology today blogs, uh, a logical take and um, Plato on pop. You can also follow me on Facebook. Just go on Facebook and search for David Kyle Johnson. I should pop up. I have an author's page that pops up there and I, I post whenever I, you know, publish articles and new courses and that kind of stuff. It, it, uh, it pops up there. And then on Twitter, I'm Kyle eight, four, two, five. Good. And you even have other books that are available to the public. A lot of the philosophy and pop culture series. And one is the inception book in which you gave a talk about with Google. That's correct. I had that, that Google talk last time I looked had quarter of uh, three quarters of a million hits, seven, 750,000 uh, views, oh, which great. I was kind of proud of. So I have this book on Inception called Inception and Philosophy because it's never just a dream. That's still pretty popular because Inception is a classic that people still still talk about. And in addition to this, this will be my first plug for this because I literally just signed the contract. Uh, I am also going to edit a new online reference work that will also be eventually be a handbook on pop culture as philosophy for Pelgrave. Uh, publishing. So it's ultimately going to be like, we're going to have 75, 10,000 word chapters, each one on a different aspect of uh, a different pop culture item like Star Wars, Star Trek. We'll do some stuff on like, like, like video games is going to be an option there. Well, then it's not just going to be sci-fi. Like we're going to have a, uh, I tend to have an article on Fight Club, right? Like uh, any kind of pop culture that can be addressed or that can be viewed as philosophy. So not just raising philosophical issues, but that seems to be making a philosophical argument, taking some kind of philosophical stance. The goal uh, is to identify what that stance is and then evaluate it philosophically. And so that'll be a, a series that you can start looking for coming out. And it'll eventually be published as a, as a handbook, maybe a few years before that handbook is done, because 750,000 words is going to take a while. But that's the idea. All right. Very good. Thanks for your time today. Great. Thanks so much for having me on, Justin. Take care. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com, where you can connect with me on social media, find past episodes on many podcast platforms, and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work by becoming a donor through Patreon or PayPal. Access special rewards, including the ability to have upcoming guests answer your questions, custom podcast episodes, and personalized one-on-one discussions. Share, comment, like, subscribe, and leave reviews to help support my efforts. Email me with your thoughts, justinvacula at gmail.com. Podcast music, used with permission, is brought to you by Phil Giordana's symphonic metal group Fairyland from their album Score to a New Beginning. Audio edits are brought to you by John Bartman. Have a great day.